Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Jacob. Thanks for tuning in to the season eight finale of Fly on the Wall. Jacob, I don't know about you, but I've been having trouble sorting through all this crazy 2020 election news, which is why I was so glad that we could sit down with a political communications expert like Liz Smith. Absolutely. Liz Smith is a veteran on the campaign trail, having worked on over 20 campaigns, including Bill de Blasio's 2013 mayoral campaign, President Barack Obama's second presidential campaign, Governor Andrew Cuomo's 2018 re-election campaign, and most recently, Pete Buttigieg's presidential primary campaign. Given all that, I can't think of a better person to help us decode the role of political communications and help us look ahead to Georgia and the future of our democracy. And all of the things we should be looking out for in season nine of Fly on the Wall. Great point, Jacob. Speaking of season nine, make sure that we are flying into your Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds by following at Fly on the Wall Pod. We'll have exciting listener opportunities coming your way soon. And if you've got any questions about the latest buzz, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Liz Smith. All right. Hello, Ms. Smith, uh, and thank you for joining us on the pod this morning. Thanks for having me. So a lot has been happening recently. Uh, how and where did you watch election results come in? Um, I watched it from my couch in the West Village. So it's the first election I haven't um, been involved in since 2004. Um, so it was it was a pretty chill night. Definitely. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, clearly someone with, with your background is watching for all kinds of things uh, during election night. So what what were the big big stories that you were watching? What surprised you? Um, what lined up with your expectations on election night? Um, you know, I, the main thing I was looking at was the suburban vote um, and how much um, you know that would tip for Biden. I think we saw in 2018, 2017 and 2018, a big swing in the suburbs away from Republicans and Trumpism in general. Um, so I knew that would be important. I was also just interested to see if he'd be able, if Biden would be able to expand the map um, with Georgia, with Arizona. Um, clearly he was. And I, you know, those were, those are really big wins. Um, but, you know, the suburb, the trend of the suburban vote is um, going to be an interesting one, I think, for Democrats to keep an eye on in the coming years. So what does preparing for an election uh, as a comms person look like uh, when the results might be uncertain? And then after it's over and it's and it's been announced, what what should messaging be like and how should it change throughout that process? Well, I mean, I think that you've got to just prepare people that it's going to be a voting week, not a voting day, um, an election week, not an election day. Um, and to, you know, sort of keep their powder dry. One thing we saw in 2018 is that we didn't see the full, um, you know, the full breadth of Democrats, uh, victories in, in these house races until, you know, a few weeks after the election. Um, and, you know, sometimes there is an expectation among the media, among, you know, voters that these things are going to be called immediately. And if not, that, that, you know, everyone should panic. Um, but the trend lines were very good on election night, um, to people who follow this stuff. And, you know, to me, there's no doubt that Biden was going to win, but it is really hard to plan against someone like Donald Trump because he's completely unpredictable. He doesn't go along with any of the norms. His operation, um, you know, doesn't care about um, being ethical or, you know, abiding by the rules. And so, 
you know, you can't waste a ton of emotional energy on that stuff. And I think that the Biden people generally are, have been smart in not feeding too much into, you know, the Trump show on contesting the election results. And so you mentioned uh, watching closely the, the suburbs and seeing um, where they're going to swing. Um, another story that I've heard um, and I was, I'm curious to hear your take on is the future of um, sort of identity politics voting in America, um, especially when Florida was called. Um, some Republicans uh, came out and showed that it was evidence of um, a more uh, non-racially based electorate voting. And I was wondering if you felt that that was accurate, whether things were realigning. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I avoid using the term identity politics. I think it's been weaponized by, you know, people on both sides. But the, um, but yeah, the, there's no question that there are some underlying issues that Democrats need to address there. We do have an issue with the Latino vote. Um, and it's not just in Florida. And I think we've got to figure out a new way to, you know, communicate with the broad diversity of Latino communities and understand that immigration cannot be the beginning and end of that, of that um, communications with them. We've got to, you know, message with them about, um, you know, public safety, about education, about the economy, um, and understand that, you know, Cuban Americans are very different from Mexican Americans who are very different from Puerto Ricans who are very different from, you know, Dominicans and, um, you know, really speak indivi individually to those um, different communities about um, the day-to-day -day issues that impact their lives. Otherwise, you know, we could continue to see, you know, support among um, Latino voters sort of bleed and, and migrate to the Republicans. So this election was certainly unique um, in that all of the rallying that took place was virtual. Uh, and I guess this is more true of the Democrats than of the Republicans since, since President Trump did hold a number of in-person rallies. But to what extent do you think this election has the potential to change the future of comms? And what do you think we learned from it? Yeah, well, I think we found new ways to communicate and more efficient ways to communicate. Um, you know, you can do an event in Wisconsin. You can do an event in Michigan. You can do an event in, you know, Arizona from a basement in Delaware. Um, you know, I, I think that there are some drawbacks to having to doing like online only and virtual only campaigning. Um, but there are also a lot of efficiencies to it. You know, it doesn't make sense for a presidential candidate to, you know, spend all day, you know, tiring themselves out, flying around to city after city after city when they can sort of achieve the same ends from, um, you know, you know, zooming into local media, holding roundtables, um, you know, remotely. And I, I think going forward when, you know, we can hold in-person events again, we will see sort of a hybrid of the best practices from that we learned during the pandemic and the, you know, the things that we did in the past, you know, in-person rallies, in-person press events. Um, but you know, Joe Biden won, despite the fact that he was not going out there. And he had a pretty convincing win, despite the fact that he wasn't going out there and doing traditional retail politicking. And there's got to be something that we can learn from it, um, because it, it, it is much more cost effective, much more, you know, it's better on people's bodies, their time, all of those things. And, you know, it's smart for campaigns to innovate and, and, and learn from the, the lessons from this crisis. Certainly. Um 
we've seen a lot of concern about um, the internet and social media bringing misinformation online. And as more and more political activities taking place online as well, what does the future of our democracy look like from your perspective in terms of declaring victory um, from candidates and, and being able to, to process information from a political standpoint online? I mean, I think you declare victory when you win an election, which is what Biden did. I mean, especially as a media consumer, how do you how do you weed through that as more and more of it is is going online? Uh, I don't think that you have to give any quarter to Donald Trump when he declares victory. He lost the election. Sorry, uh, I just I just don't. No, that like, that makes sense. That fact that a question about the state of truth has to be so convoluted feels feels silly sometimes. So then, moving yeah. in moving into the future a little bit, um, looking at Georgia, who do you think wins and and how? What what do you think the victor must do effectively that that maybe they didn't do uh, in previous years in Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone, um, I don't think anyone should be making any bold um, or certain predictions about what's going to happen in Georgia. I mean, I, you can really, really see it going either way. Um, for Democrats to win, what they would have to do is sort of cobble together the and hold together the coalition that Biden was able to build um, in the 2020 uh, in the you know November election, which was you know uh, strong turnout in strong turnout in urban areas, strong turnout for Biden in the suburban areas, and um, uh, cutting into Trump's margin in, in the more exurban and rural areas. If Democrats can do that. Um, you know, they'll win. The question for both parties is uh, who is going to have the excitement on their side here? Are Democrats going to be energized to help deliver a majority to Biden in the Senate? Um, are Republicans going to be energized because they feel like, you know, they were robbed of this election and, um, you know, they want to go out and sort of, you know, uh, show some vengeance. I don't know. I, and I don't, th I don't think any either side um, really has a sense about who is more energized at the moment. Uh, but, you know, we've got, we've got two good candidates down there and there's clearly going to be you know more money than God spent there. So um, uh, it's, it's really going to just come down to whether Democrats can, can turn out the base, turn out the suburban voters and keep the numbers down. I think one thing that Democrats do benefit from here too um, is the fact that you will not have Trump at the top of the ticket, really juicing the turnout in these, um, you know, in, in the rural areas, right? And that was a big problem, I think, just for Democrats across the board in 2020, which is that we had to um, contend with that. Um, and but then there's also the issue that he's not on the top of the ticket. So I are the suburban voters who are very offended by him, who, whose sensibilities are offended by him, are they and who might otherwise be you know, Republicans or independents, are they still going to um, cast their lot with Democrats? I don't know. So then staying in the future, um, there's definitely been a lot of public debate about how coronavirus relief should happen, uh, when it should happen and you know how a vaccine eventually happens um, and science the entire time has been in question. So in your mind, how do we come back to trusting science? Um, does science just need better comms people or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, maybe, I think everyone should have their own comms people, but it, it, it's just gonna be an ongoing struggle um, because we now have one political party that is 
you know, so uh, that it's cast their lot with being completely anti-science. You know, it's 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 something that we haven't ever seen before. Um, and so Democrats have to be vigilant about it. But we can't let, you know, things like science, like facts, like truth become a partisan issue. And we can't be the only people out there communicating on this. Um, you know, we have seen uh, research, the research and medical communities trying to step up and um, speak out against the misinformation that's being pushed by the Republican Party and certainly Donald Trump on the coronavirus. But, um, you know, it's clear that partisan attitudes and sentiments are driving a lot of um, a lot of the public sentiment on this. So it's going to be it's going to be an ongoing challenge. And honestly, I just don't see how we ever how we um, can really fix it until the Republicans decide to start electing people who trust doctors, trust science, um, you know, uh, believe in research, believe in facts and reason. Well, here on Flying the Wall, and especially in 2020, we try to end things on a lighter note. And so uh, we're going to throw um, just three uh, off-topic questions about you just say the first thing that pops into your head. Um, first off, what's something that everybody should read? Um, I, I, they should read some good good fiction books. I think people generally um, are, are a little too tuned into the news these days. Definitely. Fiction is, is very important right now. Uh, everyone needs an escape. So then, second question. With, uh, with Thanksgiving coming up, do you have any favorite Thanksgiving foods? I don't. I hate Thanksgiving food. I'm a vegetarian. So my favorite Thanksgiving food is champagne. Nice. I, I'm also vegetarian, uh, but not, yeah. not, not of age yet. So I'll, I will take up that recommendation in, in, a, in a couple of years. Um, and lastly, um, Jacob's from Oklahoma and I'm from Seattle. So we got very different weather and we both dislike our local weather equally. So what is your favorite kind of weather? Uh, hot, steamy. I, I like the summer. I like summers in New York. Um, I absolutely detest, you know, cold weather. You do well in Oklahoma then. <laughs> um, so uh, with that, we can go ahead and, and wrap it up. Thank you, Ms. Smith, for, for joining us. Um, it, was, it was great to speak with you. Great. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our final episode of Season 8. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at flyonthewallpod or email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll see you all in season nine. And wherever you're flying, we wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. <laughs>